Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent. Sarah O'Brien, thanks for joining us today. We're going to talk about the work of the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council and then draw some parallels into that on other things people ought to be thinking about in terms of the topics there. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about the organization? Sure. I'm Sarah O'Brien. I'm the CEO of the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, which is an organization that provides a multi-stakeholder uh, kind of meeting place for uh, primarily purchasers, uh, institutional purchasers, both public and private sector, but also uh, suppliers of sustainable solutions, advocates, researchers, others interested in moving forward uh, sustainability th- using the lever of procurement. Okay. And that's it how for you, us. And how did you come to choose that as your, your way of serving? Yeah, you know, I started out as an advocate, environmental advocate, and spent time, you know, all the way from bullhorns and signs, shutting down incinerators, uh, through many years to legislative advocacy, um, particularly on uh, issues around mercury and other persistent toxics in New England and and nationally. And uh, I'll I'll tell you a little story that really is illustrative of why procurement. Um, I had been involved in uh, a long-term fight in the state of Vermont on a mercury reduction and and disclosure bill took you know years and years and one of the big issues was mercury disclosure the lamp manufacturers at the time said it was impossible to tell purchasers how much mercury was in the lamps they were buying and so we you know fought about that for several years uh, my next job i was involved with procurement and we went into a uh, vendor conference i think it was the state of california and I think it was about a $30 million lamp contract and the state of California said well we want disclosure on all the lamps on this contract, which was, you know, thousands of lamps, a giant state contract. And one of the gentlemen who I had tussled with for years stepped right up from one of the companies and said, well, if you give us about six weeks, two months, we can get that done for you. And I thought, okay, here's the way to use the regular business process to drive change, right? So for that supplier, it makes sense. It's a huge contract, a huge uh, a customer. So sure, they've got the incentive to make the change that will be better for the environment. And uh, from my perspective, if I can find those folks who want to put their money toward these more sustainable solutions, it, it's a win-win. Everybody's moving forward on the issue instead of uh, you know spending four years fighting over it. So mm. that kind of opened my eyes and that was about 20 some years ago. And I've been in uh, environmental purchasing first and now broader sustainable purchasing ever since. Great. So I'm Dustin Lanier. I'm with Civic Initiatives. We work on purchasing topics for clients around the country and uh, are interested in the sustainability issue as it's come up for some of our clients in a couple of different flavors. So speaking of clients and members, Sarah, you guys have a pretty broad cross-section of members, uh, both uh, private sector folks who are interested in these topics. And then of course, a variety of of public sector uh, participants. So why don't you tell us about who your members are and what kind of people from uh, those entities tend to be involved in your work? Sure. Well, we have, you know, every every few days we we gain members. So we have around 160 uh, organizational members Um, and we really run the gamut. Not only do we cross public, private sector purchasers, higher ed purchasers are a big constituency, 
specialty. Um, also, as I said, suppliers and others. But we have everything from, you know, Fortune 100 companies like Microsoft down to small community colleges and small towns uh, participating. And really, the the within those organizations, there are a number of kind of key key folks that participate. Uh, first of all, CPOs in the public sector. We work with the state of California and, and Angela Shell, the CPO of California, is on our board, as was Betsy Hayes, the CPO of Minnesota. So we have mm -hmm. some of the real leadership. We have others who are uh, often one person in a very large organization kind of tapped by their boss. Okay, now we need to do sustainability procurement. You know, you do it. You coordinate or manage or, or bring everybody along, right? We have a lot of resources really focused on enabling, right? That's what we're here for is to provide people with what they need when they need it because they've got a job and often they come to this job without an extensive sustainability background. So we provide things like um, category guidance. You know, if you're told, hey, we need to revolutionize our lumber buying and you have no idea what the issues are, who might be working on them, what some model specifications or policies are, you can come to us and we've had, we have those packaged up. You can pull them down, work with your category manager and kind of get to where you need to go quicker than just mm -hmm. doing a web search, wandering around. We also, a really important thing that, that we do and that we think is critical for folks, whether leaders or just starting out, is to bring people together for critical conversations, right? So a lot of this work, because you want to align market signals uh, in terms of sustainable purchasing, it you don't want to differentiate on this. You want to do what other people are doing. You know, you we want to push to the cutting edge, but we want to actually copy and paste what each other's done so that suppliers get a really clear signal. Okay, you know, I need recyclable content. And so do, you know, 500, 500 other purchasers who have made that same request. For the supplier, that's then a clear driver for change, right? If all of us say, well, I need recycled content and I need uh, carbon reduction and I need something else, the supplier really has a challenge parsing out what's most important for that organization to do to meet customer demand. So, uh, you know, a lot of that work we do, whether it's written down resources or whether it's those conversations that we convene is about bringing people together to identify what's top priority and then move toward that unified ask to change the market. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I mentioned to you, and I don't know if you're very familiar with state ramp as a concept, but um, there's a, there's an NCI I interviewed a few weeks ago called state ramp that they bring vendors and buyers together into a platform to try to drive some standards that can be achieved once and used many times. Now their mandate mm -hmm. is cloud security. And the issue there right. is that not everybody who sells to uh, states also sells to the feds. So they're building a parallel to FedRAMP. But mm -hmm. the, the reason I bring it up is it's saying there ought to be some target that if we get to it, then we can use it across multiple entities and not have right. to redo it and redo it and redo it for every little village and township in the country. So are there any right. parallels on what you're trying to accomplish, but more on, on the sustainability side? Yeah, I think very much so. That same idea that, look, if somebody's done the research and, and often it's a very large, you know, maybe it's the state of California where they've got a specific environmental imperative about 
air emissions. Um, they've they've done research. They've got their procurement engineers, you know, really working through what needs to happen, and they put something forward. Well, there's no reason. I mean, maybe the the tiniest community college can't plug and play that, but they can take the right. sort of top line stuff and use it again and again. That that um, one of the reasons I, I think that some of our supplier members really like being part of the community is they can um, understand better. It's almost like a, a private focus group. They can understand better what people are looking for and they can have the discussion where they, having understood that, if another purchaser, purchaser comes to them sort of out of left field, they can say, well, you know, I understand what you're looking for. We do this slightly differently because we've been asked by a number of organizations to do it this way. Will that meet your needs? And often it does meet their needs. You know, it's it's an organization that, as you say, a small organization maybe has gone online, come up with something, and is you know perfectly happy with um, what other purchasers have settled on as kind of the the best right. practice now. You know, I think that the one thing that's critical and this is always true with, with procurement, is that it's a cyclical process, right? So you can you ask for a set of goals or a set of attributes for a given product, say, at a given time, and you may then want to push the envelope further. That's an, that's an easier thing for a very large purchaser to do, whether private or public, to try and engage with suppliers and, and innovate and, and move the bar you know, a little further. And then all those smaller suppliers who don't have the purchasing power, but really want to, you know, go along that sustainability journey can also adopt that that next iteration of what's required or expected of suppliers. Well, it's been interesting because we've, we've had a survey out on environmentally preferable purchasing, which is still going to be available for another several days. So I'll drop the URL at the bottom if people are on and want to participate. It's been interesting because we've tried to isolate in where does sustainability and procurement touch and how do they touch? And as I've been talking to different mm -hmm. entities, I've gotten everything from, oh, I have a person inside of my shop and they have this responsibility and they work right. with purchasers. I've talked to other people who have, there may be a sustainability person or pledge, but that's over there and it hasn't really penetrated the purchasing shop. And I've talked right. to some, some shops who are like, we don't have anything, right? And so yeah. it, it really... It really is across the board, like different different sizes and shapes. So how do you build a connection between whatever the level of, of commitment to a sustainable environment that have mm -hmm. made, been made on a policy side, how do you connect that to the purchasing function, which is where a lot of the ability yeah. to express those mandates. Exactly. Drives, happens. Right? I mean, that's that's the first thing to, to realize is that you know, the, the reason the SPLC exists, the reason this exists as sort of a discipline of sustainable purchasing is purchasing is an incredible lever for driving change, right? Purchasing happens every single day. It, it follows, you know, normal business process. It's a core of any organization. So unlike a sustainability project, which might be, oh, that's nice to have and everything, but now there's a recession, so we're going to cut back. Purchasing keeps voting for the products and services that we want, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we always talk about, particularly with the folks that are just starting out, is that um, sustainable purchasing doesn't mean you abandoned uh, regular purchasing. You know, you're going to do purchasing that achieves value for money and strengthens your organization and meets your performance requirements, right? The sustainability attributes are 
over and above that so that you're not only strengthening your organization, you're also helping strengthen society, have a healthy environment and so forth. So that's one of the first things to sort of cross off the, the anxiety I, uh, sort of list is you're not abandoning price and performance. You're not abandoning those other requirements. You're adding other best value requirements, basically. So, um, so I'm sorry, back to your question of, you know, how do you, how do you connect sustainability and procurement? As you alluded to, a lot of, um, public sustainable, uh, sustainable purchasing is driven by legislative mandates or executive, you know, governor's mandates and so forth. So first of all, you've got that mandate and you've got other departments of, of state government or of your city government, et cetera, that can help you. So if you are looking to understand something about an environmental sustainability issue um, and you've been for example, um, people are probably now being tasked with, okay, we've got a big climate reduction goal for our state. We need procurement to be aware of and drive climate you know, emissions reductions through our procurement. Well, that's a pretty big mission, right? For someone who's like, I'm a category manager. I know a lot about my product and service category, but I really don't know about that. However, if it's a legislative mandate, you usually can tap into your environmental department, your um, you know commerce department to look for local companies. So there, there are ways to tap into the whole kind of architecture of state government to find the expertise that you need to bring to bear on whatever category, whatever issue you're being expected to shoulder. So that's the first thing I would say is, you know, reach out to the other stakeholders that are addressing the issue that you're now tasked with and try and get them to to feed you information and support what you're doing. Um, and in fact, I should make a shameless plug for we have a, a white paper, which is called um, Maximizing Engagement in sustainable procurement, which is specifically uh, based on a set of interviews with our public sector folks yeah, and kind of how did they do welcome. that. Shameless yeah, plugs yeah. are welcome. Uh, shameless on, plugs on are welcome. Yeah. So, uh, so, well, yeah. we've got, yeah, we've got, uh, we've actually got two, one of which was largely focused on the private sector and getting investment in your program. And the second one, our public sector folks who went to them and said, well, how do you get investment? And most of them said, oh no, we've got a mandate. We've already got the, you know, sort of the power to do it. Our issue is engaging other people in government to help us carry this out, whether it's procurement mm -hmm. managers, whether it's people you know, end users and so forth. And so we collected sort of their their collective wisdom on ways to do that and ways to support um, growing engagement across, uh, you know, across the procurement department and, and others. Yeah. Um, well, I had it a is, conversation really a, with it, a procurement person from a fairly, certainly in the upper range of population in the country. And I asked about yeah. it and they said, well, our environmental office does that kind of thing. And I said, right. But then within categories, there's ways to have small form things. And it was just that it's that connection between yeah. how do we make a practical impact? And so we made an infographic, I made an infographic after that phone call that said, out of the conversations that I've had, where are some of the practical places where this touches procurement? And even if mm -hmm. the state for doesn't consider themselves to be on one end of the spectrum or another, there's practical things like on, do we want our toner cartridges to be yeah. to be multi-use? 
do we want to have recyclable material as a component? Like it doesn't have to be the commit all the way to the edge to right. start saying there should be some standards. And so we, our infographic laid out like 15 areas that we saw consistently, and then we worked those into the survey. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how do you talk to someone who says, I don't necessarily have the mandate to go out and right. carbon load all of our transport logistics costs, but we right. should have a standard for what recyclable paper is. Like where, right. where are the levels and how can they figure out like ways to start? Well, you know, starting starting somewhere is the most important, not to just say, hey, somebody else is doing it. It's not my business. Um, so, so I definitely agree with you that, you know, um, being able to take small steps is important. Um, and, you know, small steps across multiple product categories adds up. It really does. The, the impact of public procurement, as you know, is huge. Um, you know, it's a large sector of GDP and it really does make a difference. So people can start, um, you know, as I think you've been working on uh, the eco-label side of things, people can start by using reputable eco-labels where you know that it's been developed in a multi-stakeholder way following, you know, ANSI for the U.S., but other standards, um, you know, so it's, so it's credible. It's not just an industry kind of seal of approval that maybe, you know, gives extra stars to what's already happening instead of mm -hmm. kind of moving beyond that. Um, you want to look for uh, something that provides its own um, assessment. One of the things that people get into as they start this journey is, oh no, now I have to check everybody's homework. I've asked them to show me, you know, all of the chemicals in their product and now I have to assess them. Well, no, you know, you want to look for in that case, a reputable, um, you know, accreditation or, or review to say, no, there aren't highly toxic, toxic chemicals in this. This falls within your, you know, new policy. Um, so making sure to build in uh, verification by a third party, which you don't pay for, you're not involved in, is a really important first step for people when they're using eco-labels um, and simplifies your job immensely. Um, the other thing is looking for often uh, these days, more modern eco-labels will have lay and, and actually even suppliers will show um, levels of environmental preferability. So, you know, I remember long ago, uh, my friend Yama Siddiqui at uh, Office Depot put together a whole program for light green, medium green, and deep green. So that mm. if you really wanted, you know, you, you wanted to buy recycled paper, but you couldn't quite afford the price premium on 100% recycled paper, you could go for that medium green, which was 30% right. recycled and unbleached, not bleached with chlorine. So, you know, again, starting out looking for that um, gradated or graduated label is really helpful because you may be able to begin by saying, I used to work for the EPEAT label, which is for IT, and it had bronze, silver, gold. People could say, well, all, you know, I'm going to go for bronze because those are, you know, I use computers from a local manufacturer. I still want to do that. You know, I've got a systems integrator that we've used for 40 years. I don't want to just dump them because they can't hit the highest level. So they would right. say, okay, I'm going to require bronze. I'll get my local vendors in and then I'll encourage them to move up. Um, one of the things that um, we always, you know, and this is, this is sort of standard procurement, but um, 
we always talk about with sustainability and particularly for folks who want to keep or who need to keep small suppliers, local suppliers, you know, in the boat is to, to signal, to prefer, and then to require, right? So first you say, you know, in our next contract, when we reopen this contract, we're going to be looking for these environmental attributes. So that's two years from now. Everybody has time. We, we can offer you some information or some training or a vendor conference or something to, to talk about this issue and how you can begin to address it. But we're not, you know, we're not booting you out or anything right now. Secondly, we're going to prefer those folks that can show that they're meeting that criterion, you know, the 100% right. recycled paper. But we're not going to exclude anybody. They're just going to get some extra points. They're going to be, you know, raising to the top. But finally, you know, maybe five years out, we need you to actually begin to learn and move along this trajectory with us. Um, well, I'm definitely, you know. I'm definitely interested in eco labels and marketplace, but mm -hmm. let's pop up a couple of comments that have happened so far and maybe take one. So one was, sure. um, can you point us to where the white paper that you've mentioned, like, so where would somebody yes. find that? So you can find it on our website at sustainablepurchasing.org. I can put it in the chat probably. Okay. Sometimes the chat's a little wonky. So, um, okay. if you can't, well, we can go I'll with the follow-up. I'll put it in the, I'll put it in the LinkedIn chat. Afterwards. Sure. So, so um, it's and what, our, was the, what was the span of that report? That is uh, six strategies for engaging stakeholders around uh, sustainable procurement. Okay. Um, and that, yeah, it's on our website, sustainablepurchasing.org. And then uh, Richard Pennington asked one of the challenges in evaluating competing responses in different types of RFPs is the guidance on how to evaluate some of this criteria where sustainability yeah. may be one of many standards. So how do you balance, yeah. how, how have you seen people try to incorporate this? Is it just simply yeah. putting in requirements and then that's kind of a, fa a, a pass fail? Have you seen people mm -hmm. trying to say, we give more points based on how yes. much you meet our standards? So what are some examples that you've seen of how people, maybe, sure. maybe somebody who's just trying to just start or is it somebody who it's really what they're trying yeah. to drive? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, you know, like everything else, it sort of falls along a gradation according to how, how prepared you are to, you know, uh, deal with the consequences. So uh, I think, yeah, the, the, the place people usually start is um, first of all, by identifying uh, category contract categories where there are a lot of systems, sustainable alternatives available. I mean, we've, we've mentioned recycled paper and I think that's just because, you know, 30 years ago or maybe a little more now, the federal government said, we're going to need, we're going to require uh, recycled content in our copy paper. And that was, you know, a huge driver for change. So now we can all access recycled content. Um, that's an easy one to say, I just require it. You know, I, I, I don't, nobody else is in the pool. Right. Mm -hmm. But for things like, um, you know, reduced carbon concrete, for example, well, that's kind of a real specialty item. There are a lot of people working on it, um, reducing the amount of concrete emitted in the production of concrete. But right now, there there's sort of a few options. They are higher cost. The carbon reduction is not that significant. So in that kind of a situation, giving added points, you know, and saying, yeah, we, we value the effort, we value the product, we're going to give it a little edge, but if it's, you know, still more costly than we can afford right now, you know, we'll have to 
wait till the next round. Um, right. So I think there are a number of ways, you know, the really committed leaders on this stuff set, you know, in or out baselines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mm -hmm. either provide something that meets our needs and this is getting more and more um, critical for particular private, particularly private companies, but also, you know, states and others who have made big commitments, particularly on climate, on, on the social side um, to, you know, community benefit from their purchasing and so forth. When you've made that kind of a big commitment and put it out to the world and you really need to execute it, it, you, you've moved beyond when it's just a few points and maybe you'll, you know, mm -hmm. gee, you'll, you'll get ahead of, uh, ahead of somebody. It really becomes for me to meet my commitments as an organization, for the state of California to meet their climate commitments, right. everything we purchase is going to have to show a reduction in climate. So we are going to prefer the product that is lower carbon every time. And then, you know, you have to meet all the other attributes as well. So it's really, it, it's partly a taste for, uh, it's partly the level of commitment of the overall organization and their ability to tolerate, well, gee, maybe we'll have to pay more um, well, for I do want to come right to now. the cost choice yep. thing here in a second. Yep. But um, yeah. so so on eco-labeling, right? So yeah. I obviously don't claim to be a sustainability expert, but I feel like I am pretty good at procurement. And I was quickly overwhelmed by... Yeah by what an eco label is right i mean there there had to be 40 or 50 different eco labels on the epa site right and then there's all the the different type of labels for construction standards and the rest so i can see how someone who maybe hasn't done anything with it looks at it and quickly falls into analysis paralysis on like how do i yeah. use this so, yeah. so how does somebody who's trying to improve Maybe, maybe at minimum, they're trying to add certain things to their contract portfolio or to their catalog portfolio that give the end users choice. Like, yeah. how do they start to even, how do they come into this without feeling like it's too much for them to learn and they can't afford the, the cycles? Like, yeah. how do you, yeah. how does somebody get their feet into it without having to understand every single piece of it? Great question, and and one that you know and maybe that's something you guys solve, right? Um, so. It is part of what we do. It is part of what we do. We try and say, you know, what are the priority impacts in this category? So, you know, recycled content may not matter if something you know is so toxic that it kills your janitorial staff, you know, over mm -hmm. time if they use it. Okay, you know, so so one thing is is that sort of prioritization of what's really important in this category. Um, the other, again, is looking for the multi-attribute standards because, you know, the multi-attribute standard is trying to say, okay, we want it somewhat less toxic, some recycled content, lower energy use, you know, sort of all those things you might want in an ideal product, uh, a multi-attribute standard is trying to at least touch on. And uh, having been in on the development of the, of the EPEAT standard long ago, um, you know, that's that's a pretty good consensus. You get hundreds of people from all perspectives. You get a lot of debate, uh, sometimes just endlessly painful debate. And you really do come out with a pretty good balance of what the, you know, global stakeholder group mm -hmm. thinks is most important and most attainable. Right. So, um, so using those multi-attribute standards is kind of a, a baseline recommendation. Um, and I think, you know, 
the proliferation of eco labels there are, I think when I was doing electronics, there were 300 different global electronics labels and, you know, every country issued their own different attributes were, you know, reviewed. And I think that again, um, looking for a place like the SPLC or another place that you can meet with other purchasers, you find out pretty quickly, oh, you know what? This one covers 80% of what you're going to need. So mm -hmm. just, you know, pick and use this one. There's plenty of product available, which is, you know, as a young environmentalist, that was a, a big learning curve for me was, you know what? We've got to get three bids and you can specify the most beautiful, wonderful product ever. But if I only get two, you're in trouble right. and I'm in trouble. We can't right. do that, right? So it's right. it's picking that eco label also that has a a realistic kind of um, mid to top of the market in terms of sustainability performance, but isn't just saying you know everything has to be perfect right now, or we can't buy products because you know right. buying products is what procurement is in the business right. of. Um, so so when it comes to eco labels, really. Um, and other and other um, you know specifications and policies and so forth. We really advocate for the time honored, you know, copy paste tradition. You mm -hmm. know, look at what what other organizations <clears throat> your size are doing. Look at um, what the the federal government is doing or the eco labels that they've reviewed, and figure that these people have been doing it a long time. I can pull those down and use them everywhere well, and as you that, said at the start it helps the vendors to comply right like right. if we're right if, if the standard is known then it yeah. means that we help to create and enable a market right? right and so um we've been talking a lot about procurement and sustainability so then mm -hmm. one thing that you see procurement do more and more is try to to, to negotiate like a, a basket of goods like an office supply or mro or right. some of the different mm -hmm. buckets wherein they may identify certain things as being more green than than other things, right? And so then, so I'd like to have a conversation about how procurement presents choices to the end user. Yeah. There may be some departments that care a lot more about some of this than others. How, do, how have you seen people try to inform the end users? Commonwealth Massachusetts has a, a directory of their environmentally preferred goods and services that's a downloadable document. I think other people right. try to actually do the cliche leaf in an electronic procurement right. system to be able to tag something as having a, a green characteristic. So how does procurement then take the action and then, and then load the ability for the end user to make choices that are good choices for their programs? It's a great question and one that I know you, you work on uh, ERP development with uh, a bunch of folks and one that people are more and more integrating into their electronic systems for sure. Um, I think there are a couple of, you know, as you noted, there are a couple of ways of doing it. One is to kind of tag items and say, all things being equal, you know, buy the greener alternative. Um, there are some, I know long ago with the Granger catalog, the state of Massachusetts, Commonwealth of Massachusetts had um, a pop-up where it would say, you know, you've selected a mercury containing product. Here's the alternative that doesn't contain mercury. Um, that was, you know, very useful because right mm -hmm. at the point of purchase, you were like, oh, okay, I can just click on this mm -hmm. one. It's the same thing performance-wise. Um, mm -hmm. The other the other way that people tend to do this is to work with a vendor. This is particularly with office supplies or other, you know, small goods where people are just going with a card, buying some pencils or whatever, uh, is to actually create a portal 
that is just for the customer. So I know EPA did this. Obviously, they have large purchasing power, but no larger than a lot of states. EPA is not that big. Where, you know, you go to an Office Depot or Office Max or whatever, and it only presents you, you sign in, and it only presents you with the products that are on contract for your particular mm -hmm. organization. That's, uh, you know, that's choice editing is the nice thing to call that, um, which just means you only get the choices that are compatible with the uh, sustainability requirements. Um, you know, when it's, when it's more left to the end user, there's a lot of leakage. You know, people just don't know. They're, they're, they're not, not in a portal that shows them exactly what they need. Uh, and so we do, you know, see that a lot of the, the real success around compliance comes from, and this is true with, with other you know, other attributes, other programs comes with that kind of choice editing or at least a kind of active, hey, you know, this isn't on our list. Look on the list for for this item. Some some active intervention kind of at that point of purchase because people have a lot on their minds, as you say, right. you know. There's always been a perception, at least at some point, that greener product is more expensive. And mm -hmm. certainly as maybe as manufacturers are making changes to be able to incorporate different things, I can see why mm -hmm. that would be true. But then mm -hmm. at some point the market has absorbed some of the change to, to do the greener topic, right? Or, you know, just because we make a choice to, to harvest wood from a sustainable forest program as opposed to another one doesn't have to inherently mean one costs more than another. So right. talk about the question about does sustainable products always cost more than non-sustainable yeah. products? I mean, I could see how adding remanufactured components to a product might make it cheaper in some cases. So to talk about right. the, the cost dynamic. Sure. I think that cost dynamic, you know, um, at first had to do with, as you say, kind of the innovation cycle. People were doing something new. It was an untested marketplace or it was a small marketplace. So many things 25 years ago, many green alternatives were more expensive. They were sold in less volume, so forth and so on. At this point, in most categories, that's not going to be true, um, that there's a fundamental cost cost adder that that results in green products being more expensive sometimes uh, vendors will try to sell them you know as more expensive because they're more specialized and so forth but um usually what we've seen is that if you're a large purchaser and you're a a, a skilled purchaser the negotiation can wipe out a lot of that differential, even if one exists among the, the green products and the, the less green products. Um, so that's that's the first thing is use your skills as a procurement person to do the kinds of negotiation that you do around any contract around price. Um, you know, look for volume, look for a exclusive relationship. You know, there are other things you can trade uh, for, the, for the lower cost. Um, and the other thing is that, um, you know, there are many solution strategies beyond just substituting one for product for another. So there are, you know, what we usually look at, I mean, we have a, I should have printed it so I could hold it up, but we, we have a, a whole sheet of sort of 20 different solution strategies for trying to drive forward at, you know, even or reduced cost plus the environmental benefit, some of which have to do with use reduction. I mean, a, a classic example for, is, um, print management, right? So everybody used to have a printer at their desk. First of all, you spent a whole ton of money on those oh, printers. Second oh. of all, those printers were just 
cranking out paper all the time, using up ink all the time because people would print a draft and, you know, look at it and toss it. So that was very high cost. So rather than, you know, when you, when at first people were like, oh, we should have policies about not printing or we should have this and that. When folks went to through, you know, an HP or another vendor, a big print management program, they found, first of all, they weren't buying the individual printers. You're buying one big centralized printer. Second of all, you know, people aren't printing that thing out just to look at it on their, they'd rather sit in their office than walk all the way to a central printer. So they actually tend to, you know, look at something on their screen and fix it. I mean, in many cases, I know Alameda County did a program like this where they wanted to buy 100% recycled content and they felt that, you know, their, their paper budget was already kind of hitting its ceiling. Couldn't do that. So they worked on change management around managed print services, around taking, you know, everybody's individual printer away from their desk. And they found that in the end, they could buy the 100% recycled content and still save about, I think it was about $120,000 a year on their paper and print costs. Um, but they they really saw the need and early on developed a strategy, which wasn't just, hey, we're going to, you know, use the 100% paper, 100% recycled paper and you know, right. who cares about the cost? They found a way to manage. Similarly, well, the there were- you just laid out has, yeah. a, has a total cost of ownership element, which we haven't yeah. really even used that yeah. phrase so far in this, right? But we did a, a strategic sourcing assessment for a state client where one of the things we looked at was their approach to printing and copying. And in a, a lower wall cube situation, Literally, of the four cubes that touched, there'd be a printer in each cube. So yeah. just even just from the pure math of right. not buying a bunch of toner to dry out in individual areas, but be able to say, right. what are the what's the impression load for this particular area, and what is the right, right thing? And if somebody needs to have a printer because they're printing secure things or or something, sure. that can be part of a balance. But yeah. absolutely, that's a great example where thinking about the approach to print in that situation, the most sustainable answer may well be the most cost-effective answer. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, total cost of ownership is is the deal, you know? Um, I mean, another great example when I worked with the healthcare sector was, um, you know, they were buying materials that were had to be qualified as hazardous waste at the end of life. And that's a huge cost center, right? When you have to get a subtitle C, RICRA certified <laughs> hauler to haul everything. At the time, actually, computer monitors were in there because they were so full of lead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there were a number of items that if you didn't look at that waste cost, they seemed much cheaper and people liked them and you were all set, right? But once you brought together the folks who touch that product on its life cycle through the organization, you find these, you know, unanticipated or unkind of recorded costs in the total cost of ownership that are significant, you know, issues. Mm -hmm. And you find those waste people who are like, no one ever asked us about this. We just bundle it up and ship it out at a cost of thousands, but we'd really much rather, you know, manage it as part of our recycling stream or something. So again, thinking about that full stakeholder, you don't have to have endless conferences with everybody, but as you launch into a new initiative, bring in the folks in your organization who touch that in some way, the end users, the, you know, uh, again, in healthcare, we found that absentee and illness costs for janitorial staff went down with more sustainable, less uh, VOC emitting 
um, floor strippers, floor waxers, that mm. kind of thing. So they're, they're even, I mean, those weren't really a quantifiable cost, but they were a real cost in a very large health system to say, right. oh yeah, we don't seem to see our janitors, you know, getting sick with respiratory illnesses as much. That's a plus for us. Let's make sure yep. that we, you know, count that into the the overall picture. Yep. So it's it's really a strategic sourcing approach. It's it's figuring out those the total cost of ownership. It's figuring out best value, and kind of accepting that sustainability. Whether whether you know immediate. Uh, exposure to workers, whether emissions to the community, whether, you know, the mining that had to happen for a specific product to be produced, those impacts are part of best value and trying to, you know, avoid those negative impacts and enhance the positive impacts is, is really a best value proposition. It's really a strategic sourcing objective along with your other objectives, rather than a kind of slap it on at the end with a checkbox. Well, I think that's a it's an excellent summary as a way to kind of bring us towards the end in most of these instances um really it, it's not kind of an add-on okay now it's better it's really just thinking through the implications and thinking through the environmental and social implications as well um yeah you know I mean, I, I have well, great faith in the procurement profession because I've seen it go from sort of just category based you know check boxes to you know the level of strategic sourcing and intensive supplier engagement and innovation conversations and so forth that that procurement undertakes now and so i think that this integration of sustainability into procurement eventually uh you know will become just the norm right. as we move forward so as we come into the end here so if there's a state or an entity that isn't doing very much of this kind of stuff and they're trying to get that. Where are there some practices I can start infusing? Is that something that they mm -hmm. can come to your group? And is that in that white paper that you mentioned? That is that, it's, that be a good it's in anymore? the white paper, sure. They right. can come. Actually, we have a whole little section on our website at sustainablepurchasing.org that says uh, it's programs getting started. And it's right. kind of a, there's a sustainability, sustainable purchasing 101 that you can look at, you can share with colleagues. There's the white papers, uh, you know, there's some other resources that are just really kind of, how do I get started? Um, and then of course, you know, I should pitch membership in our organization. We do as part I, of I, membership. I was going to up for yep. you at, at the end. Well, one of so, the things that we do is coaching. And some coaching is really helpful for folks that are starting out. So as we're in our wind down here, I'll restate that Civic, uh, we work with public sector on, on a variety of different transformation projects. We do this kind of content just to raise up issues and bring them. So we talk to people, people too, about different topics. Um, we have a survey that we're doing on environmentally preferable purchasing that we're mm -hmm. trying to still get um, some responses into that we'll use to drive some other content in the future. That's in this, uh, it's in the scroll below. It's at www.civicinitiatives.com slash EPP. So Richard Pennington also asked, does your organization support like eval committees who may want to be advised on a particular procurement or a relationship? You know, what's your, how does that touch your relationship with industry? So maybe in our, yeah. in our final shameless plugs here, right? Like how does, what, what does, what do you guys do for, for public entities, like how far down the chain do you go? So that if mm -hmm. somebody's interested in talking to you guys, that they can kind of context what the service or, or what, sure. what the options are in dealing with you. 
Sure. Um, you know, right now we are a membership organization um, because we're small and we're kind of, uh, you know, holding that uh, until we get a little bigger and we can do more outside consulting. Um, we do have a number of um, coaching modalities. So some are included in membership. Some are a la carte paid engagements. And we're intending over the course of this year to make some of those available to outside entities. What we usually, uh, you know, what we usually pitch, because it's the truth, is you can get that coaching and a whole lot more by joining as a member. It is sliding scale. So even for small organizations, you know, small cities, uh, counties, etc., we're very affordable. I encourage you to go to the website and look at the, there's 20 tiers or something, so I won't rattle them off here, but mm -hmm. uh, but it really is, it's sliding scale in order to welcome people in. And, you know, within membership, there's not only the coaching, there's a whole batch of resources, case studies, category guidance, um, you know, stuff to really get you started. Or if you're an innovator, um, keep you in the lead. We also do peer learning circles. And that's something our members really enjoy where they, we have small groups of, you know, six to eight people who meet monthly. And basically they're in the same sector and they just share challenges. Uh, you know, one person is nominated. They, they, I'm tearing my hair out with X. The others feed them resources, you know, consultants, uh, whatever they've found in their experience has worked on that problem. So that's a great opportunity for folks too, to connect with others in this field who are, as I say, often, you know, one or two people trying to turn a very big ship. So finding that fellowship and, and peer support is a great piece of, of what we do. So, um, yep. And, well, and, you know, plenty of public sector members in there who would love to welcome you and, uh, and, you know, help hold your hand. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. If anyone's got questions, you can. I' happy to share my email, and yep. uh, and you know a few more resources, whatever would be would be useful. We've got, as I say, starting resources right on the website, so we can make sure you guys can access those easily, and uh, and keep, sure. keep moving um, forward. You, you can give your you, you can say your email <laughs> in the air, and it'll okay. transcribe it automatically. So. Oh, that's right. It's Sarah S A R A H at Sustainable Purchasing. Dot org. Well, that's pretty uh, I simple. forgot. Transcription. Yes, that's very simple. And uh, yeah, encourage folks to visit. We also uh, do have a series of events coming up. Uh, first one is May 26th, and it's about purchasing in support of uh, economic, racial, and environmental equity. So really looking at kind of environmental justice, community wealth building, um, and uh, impact and anchor purchasing, which are strategies to um, build up local employment, local businesses, et cetera, kind of beyond just the supplier diversity discipline to a bigger kind of uh, look at how purchasing can drive change for the better uh, mm. throughout throughout local communities and societies. Then in, and it includes a, um, a workshop, which folks might be interested in on engaging with supplier Flyers around uh, environmental sustainability that's hosted by and led by um, Tiffany Gonzalez from uh, PG&E, who works with many, many small suppliers uh, to kind of uh, engage and, and develop their capacity to deliver environmentally sustainable products and services. So might be of interest. We're also doing a, 
supply chain greenhouse gas emissions, July 22nd, and then uh, looking at sustainability rating and reporting systems and how purchasing can leverage them for uh, supplier engagement and, and overall improvement you know, over time. That's September 29th. So all, all the keynotes and panels for those are free. So if you come to our website, you'll see the, the links. Uh, really encourage folks to to jump in and uh, and get started with some great speakers and and great great uh, new and developing areas of work. Well, excellent. Well, I'm glad I could highlight your work, and it's very interesting to me. So, you know, we will uh, uh, be happy to be helpful with you guys and take a look at some of that as well. And uh, Joanna mm-hmm. was um, was on top of it and put some of that stuff in the LinkedIn chat. So it. if somebody's <laughs> watching this real time, they'll see the chats over there and, and we'll be good Great. to go. Wonderful. So well, thanks that, so much for having you. me. All right. So thanks so much, thanks everybody for listening in chat. And I hope that it was a useful topic for you. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Hi, it's Dustin Lanier. Thanks for listening. Please find me on LinkedIn for original public sector operations content every week. And please reach out to me if I and my team of procurement professionals at Civic Initiatives can help you be a public procurement change agent.